Folks, welcome inside the Parisi Palace, high above 3773 East Broadway. This is a live edition of the Jake Feinberg Show. Comedy on Power Talk, please go to our website, powertalk.live. Download our app to your smartphone. Stream all of our live local programming, including Solomon on Blast, the Jim Parisi Show, and yours truly, the Jake Feinberg Show. And we can't thank you enough for making us part of your day today. And before he hits the uh, links this afternoon, I was able to corral my guest for set two of our interview, a guy who is, uh, you know, spinning with a, a huge amount of work in the studio. He's got cats like Richard T. Bear. He's cutting albums for them. He's putting together his own stuff. He's probably still trying to figure out how to finish that book. Most importantly, he's still spreading the love and still giving of himself, which is the most important thing in this time that we are living in. Tony Brown-Nagel, welcome back to the Jake Feinberg Show. Thanks, Jake. It's good to be back. Um, and a good Sunday morning to everybody out there. A good, all over the place. A good, a good, a good Sunday morning to everybody out there. And um, We have a lot to be thankful for. I mean, you look at my friends in Northern California, the people in Puerto Rico, um, people down in Texas and Louisiana and all the Florida, every, all the hardship around everywhere. And just in our own country, and you know, I got up this morning in the sunshine, and it's beautiful. And I go for a bicycle ride. I come back, and I get to talk on the phone to you for a while. How did you learn? What was the turning point in your? If, if there was a demarcation point when you uh, became humbled by the simplest things, I, I just know when I talk to Bear, he um, and he takes a lot of pride in it. But he started these. Um, these picnics, these sober picnics uh, for cats in the early 80s, uh, you know, and it was it was it was meant to say, hey, you can you can we can live without the drugs and the and the booze and the and but that doesn't necessarily have to do with anything else. You're talking about the simplest things, just being thankful that you're you have a roof over your head, that you're healthy enough to ride a bike, that you actually have the money to go and play 18 holes today. Was there a turning point in your life that you can talk about where you became humble to the life force that you bring and how important it is to stay humble? You know, I, I think uh, I got to give my upbringing, my parents, a little bit of credit because um, there was it, it, it was a good household. It was a religious household, but you know, and 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 and, it, and I was Catholic. I was raised Catholic. I didn't continue with the Catholic faith, and I don't go to any church now. You know, and I think over the years of all the, the craziness that I went through, because I did do all those things that you're talking about that people stop doing later on in life, and uh, you know, and I had it was a lot of fun. I don't regret that, but I, and I don't think I lost ground anywhere because. I'm of an age now where most cats are kind of letting it go, and I'm just I'm just steaming ahead, you know, with everything I'm doing. And I, I don't know exactly if there was one single epiphany or whatever, one single thing. I think it was a, a lot of different things. I, I, I saw people coming away from that, you know. We all got swept off in this direction of we got to get high to do this, da-da-da-da-da, when it was our blessing that, that you know, for the whole, of being able to play music, for the whole reason that we were together in the first place, playing music, and we kind of uh, we kind of over regaled. I think that's what happens: is you get so high doing it that you just want to stay higher, and then you go to things like drugs and alcohol, and uh, that's what happened to so many people, and they got wrapped up in it. And then 
then the, the climate around me kind of changed. And um, I always had kind of this valve, safety valve, that allowed me to say, okay, that's enough. I'm going to bed, or I'll see you all later, or, <laughs> or hang with a different crew, right. or whatever, you know. Right. And, and, uh, and then, then this climate of everybody looking for that, their higher power started to creep into the, uh, the, 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 the culture here of where I am living and the music and everything, and I saw it start to happen all over the world. And I just, you know, it just, it, it dawned on me that that was important to me as well. And I, yeah, I started doing yoga maybe, oh God, 25 years ago or more, something like that, yeah. And and I'm not a full-on yoga practitioner all the time, but I, it it's something that allows me to settle down and get to that place where I can, you know, I can feel uh, kind of peaceful within myself and, and turn off all the voices. Could you, I mean, I just couldn't think about asking a better person because we're all spirit. I mean, you, you use this term. Actually, I don't want to jump around too much because I need to ask you about that later. But the, what, what are the, still the voice, what are the, what are the, what are your mom and dad's voices? What are the, what are the little things that, that you still hear them saying in your head as it relates to your upbringing? I mean, I get that you, you know, the, maybe the rigidity of the church or the, for whatever reason, you don't worship in that organized way, but you have your own ways of doing it. And, but the anchor, what are the, still those, those little things that you hear them saying in your head? Jake, it's the things that every single religion teaches, right? You know, those basic things, right? Thou shall not steal. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Do unto others as you would do to yourself, blah, blah, blah. You see someone in need, help them out, uh, show a little mercy, you know, when you're angry, look for a way to find your way out of it without reacting and, and doing something and, and acting on your anger or whatever. I, and I, you know, I saw that from my mom and my, my dad, you know, and I mean, they weren't perfect. They weren't saints. But at the same time, I think they were great examples of just how to be a good human being because everybody loved them. When both of them died, when they died separately, you know, eight years apart or nine years apart, Everyone loved with my mother and my father when they died. You know what I mean? It was one of those things. Now, that's pretty successful thing. You can go through your life and have that many people still really like you, you know? Mm-hmm. And and to, for me, when I saw losing them both is really, really hard, and it's, it is for anybody. And I guess I was lucky to have them as long as I did. My father was 82, and my mother was, no, my father's 84, my mother's 82, I think. Um, so that's a long time to have your parents with all the disease and sickness going around. But uh, all of those years having that around and then see them go, and, and, and now I don't have them, and I reflect back on who they are, I just remember about how well they were liked, and I think that's the example that I needed to follow. And, and today I, I don't, I'm not unlike them in that way. You know, I, I go, okay, you know, I have a, a, a community of friends and family here in the music business in Los Angeles, that's we're all, we're all like family. If something happened to any one of us, the other ones are going to take care of them, you know. Hmm. And and it's you know it's been that way for a while, and it feels really good. And I think that's that's part of the success of of living this long and doing what I do and having all these friends. To me, that's the success right there. Talking to Tony Brown Nagel here on the Jake Feinberg Show. Um, you obviously are. I've talked to Doctor Feinfield about it. I just wasn't sure how aware or not aware or how engaged you are with the fact that so many musicians actually don't have their own health care out there. 
I mean, is that something that how how are you dealing with some of the like the brotherhood that maybe you're not like uh, you know calling on the phone or you know always in touch with, but yet you knew them in the past and they are and they don't even have enough and they're they don't even have the ability to be a, live a healthy life. You know, I, I, I was fortunate in that uh, I was always able to pay for insurance, and I always kept a high level of insurance, health insurance. Uh, I mean, not all my life. I mean, I, once I became, I guess, responsible in my, <laughs> sometime in my late 30s or 40s or whatever, you know. I so you actually have to, like, buy more to accumulate more? Is that? I mean, I don't know how it really works. I mean, it's not like it, like my wife is a teacher for the state of Arizona, so she... We have like a Cadillac insurance pl- plan, but like for the musician, mm-hmm. how does how does it? Because I know Doctor Feinfield, he he's trying to raise awareness with one of his concerts later this year, possibly about lack of health insurance for for the cats. And it, well, you know, it's funny that California, or that Los Angeles, of all places, hasn't done what they've done in Austin. In Austin, they have this this society that takes care that they have benefits for, and everybody contributes to, and everybody helps keep alive and keep active. And uh, it's health insurance for all the musicians in Austin, Texas. And this city could really use it. I, hmm. You know, hmm. it has to be monitored properly or else it's abused. But I really think that it would really help that any, especially any large city, Nashville, New York, Los Angeles, even Chicago, you know, having, you know, some type of society that helps everybody get uh, health insurance. Because it's, it's hell when a guy gets of an age that things start happening. And you got to go to the doctor a lot more than you did when you were in your 20s and 30s and 40s. And there's, you know, plus there's obviously there's diseases out there that seem to be kind of creeping up on us, whether they're viral or whatever, or they're cancerous or whatever, that you have to, like, try to stay healthy. Um, to me, one of the things is eat well and stay healthy and get plenty of exercise. But uh, not everybody gets a chance to do that. Um, I really, I think Dr. Feinfeld, in fact, I should probably talk to him about this a little bit more and see if we can one raise awareness and maybe get some people behind it too well i know for i mean when i interviewed him i know and you've been at those gigs i mean i think that uh, gradney told me you and kelton you played double drums there once in a while or jj kale mm-hmm. you know and it's like i know in december that's what i think you i, I would and i'm going to come out for it and document it on facebook live and i, I want to raise a lot of awareness for it because i mean to me this is like you know, I just, I mean, I don't know if you uh, ever um, knew, I mean, you've known so many cats, but there was this piano player who played with Hugh Massacale and Blood, Sweat, and Tears uh, called uh, uh, Larry Willis, and uh, he's uh, yeah. a monster, bat, and I was, and I did an interview with him like three years ago, and uh-huh. you know, this is what he said in our interview, this is like three years ago, he said, and you can just riff on this any way you want, he said that our culture in the United States, and you talked about this last time with the the Ghanians, like I said, where do you go find that music now? And you said it's been pushed off the streets. It's harder to find. He said, right. and he, and this is a cat who grew up in Harlem. He said, our culture is continually being stifled. Now, I just want to be clear. This happened in 2014 when Obama was still in office, but it's kind of eerie when he riffs on this. He goes, culture is the underpinning and backbone of any society. When you see, when you see programs that are being pushed forward to nullify education, to take away someone's health care or their ability to eat and clothe and house themselves. When there's a push to deny the right to be healthy, I am becoming more and more fearful of the move in that direction. Hopefully I can count on the intelligence and sensitivity 
of American society. It's here, and we're going to have to deal with this somehow or another, or we will endure negative consequences beyond belief. And this is the most important part. He said, culture and music stimulate the human spirit and the human intellect. If these attitudes are allowed to move forward and persist, they're going to deny and destroy that energy that society must have coming from its culture. And, you know, I want you to talk about, the, I mean, I got to be honest, after I, I, I see all the technology and all the, the, the willingness to engage the technology and to buy the latest thing and to everything's solvable. And yet I said to myself, okay, I'm just going to go and talk to peeps like Brown Nagel and Bear and Finnegan and Taj because I want to stay connected spiritually because I feel more enlightened. I feel sharper now than I ever have in my life. And I'm, it, I haven't made any kind of real money off this stuff. And so I say to myself, what is, do you feel that as well? Do you feel that, that energy that you need to have? It's not like having a Greek day, you know, a Greek festival or, you know, uh, you know, a Latin salsa, but it's like actual culture, the real culture. And he was talking about in Harlem, the stuff was just, it was out in the street the jazz was there and then the jazz moved downtown New York and a lot of the cats couldn't necessarily afford to move down there. And so do I mean, do, do, do you, I mean, not that you stay up at night. I mean, you're busy, you're a busy cat in your studio, but what are your thoughts on what he said as far as it relates to where we are now uh, currently and how much of it has to do with the fact that our culture is being stifled? Our culture is being stifled. Every time that we a certain style of government starts to become more prominent and it, it starts to move in that direction more, you see the cutbacks in areas of education and arts and stuff like that. And uh, Larry was very correct. President Obama was very correct about the fact that without all the stimulation of the culture of music and art, that part of our consciousness that wonderment, that that's that 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 part of the ether that we get to plug into, that we that we're blessed with all these wonderful things, the sunshine, just seeing, you know, good things happen, a lot of people getting together, and then all of a sudden music happens and art happens, and and uh, all these things are part of who we are and our blessing, that that's uh, as human beings. I I feel it's part of the balance of good and bad in our lives. We wake up one day, you don't feel so good. Right. You're not in a good right. mood. You right, right. What am I going to do to come out of this? I'll go for a walk. I don't know. I'm, for me, I go ride my bike or hike or do some yoga or something. And then I come out of it and I have a little something to eat and I go to the studio. And then some days I wake up in the morning and I'm just wham right away. Everything <laughs> is wonderful. Right, you know? right. You have those days. So you've got to try to remember that there are the good and the bad days. The balance is going to be there. Not everything can be perfect all the time. But what we have to do constantly is keep a vigil on the creative spirit, because the creative spirit is exactly what he was talking about. When you plug into the creative spirit, that's the part of your brain that not only makes things up and does things and comes up with ideas and solves problems, but it's the part of you that, that you get all your pleasure from as well. You know, That's the part of your brain that like, lets you enjoy and recognize things that are good. You know, the other part of your brain organizes, puts things together, blah, 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 and it's very, it's a lot stiffer, you know. 
but you have to let that part of your brain become of who you are. And the consciousness, a constant consciousness of an artist is that openness about all the things that we're talking about here. You know, music being the language of the gods. That's what you, you said know? last time. That's yeah, what you I said mean, last it, time, it, man. So, I mean, what, it, it, I want you to go deeper on that because that has uh, folkloric and metaphoric stuff. But what, I mean, go... Do do a dive on that because I, I this is where hey, the rubber. If the, yeah. if, if, the if the if if the aliens are in control, <laughs> then they're throwing this stuff at us. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. Just to make a really crazy point from this. Mm -hmm. If they're in control, they're watching us and they're throwing this music at us. They're going, I wonder if they're going to take this. I wonder if they're going to use this. Here's the tool we give them to get through all of this. Mm -hmm. These are the wonderful tools that they can have to get through life. It will help them put up with all the things that they have to do that aren't, that are not pleasant, that that are hard to do every single day. It helps them put up with their strife and their suffering and their frustration and their anger and their fear mostly. So you create this element of love and everything. So whether it's the aliens or whether it's God or whatever you believe in, whatever you think, it's there. And that's that goes back to what I said about my mother and my father. It's, it's that just the, that they showed me that good things can happen when you're good to other people and when you try to do good things to yourself as well, you know, that, that it, just, it just kind of starts to show and it glows. And if everybody glows with that thing called L-O-V-E, then we, then we all make a better world of it. And, and, and when, we, when, we, when you see the arts being trampled on and pulled back from and money pulled away and people making fun of of artists for you know sometimes artists stick their necks out too much and get too cocky and say too many things without mentioning names i'm sure we could come up with a few right now mm -hmm. that are unpopular whether they're actors or, or musicians or whatever you know and uh are are just or just artists or whatever that stick their necks out a little too far they do that because that if you don't push that to an extreme then you get to look at everything else, all the boring stuff, and you don't, you can't put it in perspective. Absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. You know, you put all that stuff. All of this allows us to put things into perspective of the good and the bad in our lives. You know, you look at a comedian, you go, "Boy, those comedians are rough. They're 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 tough people. If you hang around a bunch of comedians, <laughs> you're gonna get you're gonna get nailed." You know, <laughs> and it, it, it's okay because I hang out with a bunch of guys like that that are that funny, and, and they all nail each other all the time, and people think. Why are those comedians so cruel? It's because they're always pushing. They're always pushing for that thing that, that's kind of painful that they can come back and make you laugh about. You know? And, Absolutely. And to yeah. me, that's, that, that's an art in itself right there. You know? You sit there and you laugh and you laugh at something and you think about what you're laughing at. It, it really is kind of... Un, it's unfortunate in some ways for some people that, that what you're laughing at. But it's a, it allows you to be objective about who you are in this life, and what you're all about, and what your aims and goals are, and how you treat everybody else. It's very important. And to always push aside, try to push aside that voice in your head that brings you closer to fear and a further away from love. Mm, God, you're waxing poet. I mean, this, we're talking to a poet right now. Most people wouldn't even know he's a drummer. I mean, this is unbelievable. But Brown Eagle, language of the gods. Okay, this yeah. Bluntz and 
Rabbit and the Ghanians, and I mean, you go back to a time when it was less sophistication on the technology side, I, and not so much with Bear or you know with Gradney or if it's a, a Brown Nagel, your own uh, uh, session. But when you're talk, when you have younger cats in the studio, how do you get them to get away from the getting everything down to the point zero 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 one to the perfect? like getting away from the technology and more towards the language of the gods. How do you get, is that, is that something that, uh, cause it's not a tangible thing. Uh, and I wonder how you work, how you get cats to engage in that kind of, get them out of that mindset of having everything to be technically perfect. The sound has to be perfect and more, it has to be more about the feel and, you know, like Lin David Lindley told me yesterday, you know, I forget who he was talking to. Someone, someone would say to him, like Ry Cooter would say, you know, it's got that smell. It smells good. You know, it smells good. Yeah. You know, it's like the smell, the sound, the feel. And that's the language of the gods. And how, that's talk, the language of the talking gods. to the peeps. Yeah, how would you just talk about how you get younger peeps or just in general, what's your advice is for people that are oftentimes coming into the studio now? much spending 45 minutes to make sure that the drum sound is absolutely perfect. You, uh, it's funny you said, uh, Ry Cooter said smell. I, I, a lot a lot of musicians see colors when they hear music right. and, and make music. Actually see them, you know, see colors. And I can't say that I am blessed that I kind of see colors. I guess I, I guess I get cause, uh, an aura and a certain feeling when, I, when it's right. And I feel it all over my body and it, and I feel it grab my emotions often and um i you know i i get caught up in them you know i can hear i can i was working on a song a couple of days ago and it wouldn't come out of my head and it was a, it's a beautiful very sad ballad very sad and i woke up really yesterday. wow yeah and it and it, i woke up yesterday and i almost it just with without having any reason to cry my body and my whole soul and my heart wanted to cry it may be that sad because I'm so sensitive to all these emotions that we have in, you know, in making this music all the time. And, and I, and it, for a minute I thought, well, what's wrong with me? Am I going crazy or, you know, or, you know, what do I need? And then I thought, it's okay, just let it process, let it go through you and feel and, and, and experience it and understand it as opposed to fighting it and just try to put your hand up and shove it aside. So I kind of let it overcome me yesterday. And I, I, that's how it gets me. I don't really see colors. Uh, I can't say I smell things, although when something is really, really funky, we all try to go and open the window. So, <laughs> 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 somebody open that door, please. It's getting real funky in here. But uh, <laughs> um, by the, by the way, with the, the, the technical the technical term for for what Brown Nagel is talking about is synesthesia. It's synesthesia, uh, yeah. right? That's, that's a good one. That's good. That's well, no, good. I mean it's it, it, it literally it is. Uh, I mean, it, 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 it's a perceptual phenomenon which stimulation of one sensory or cognitive pathway leads to automatic involuntary experiences in a second sensory or cognitive pathway. And this is very beautiful. These were me. I know some of the. I didn't know them personally, but this is incredible stuff. This is about shape formation, colors. And so you probably do have some of that, but, but you, but how take that into the studio with Gen Xers and younger cats? I mean, do you, how do you make it, make it relevant and so that they can burn? Well, 
Oh, okay, good point. And I know that was your original point. I was going to get to it here. Yeah. Uh, uh, I have to use my basic things that I stand by and stick by that for my, that I know work for me, that I know that if I don't do, I'm doing it wrong. I, you know, I have to use these things because they're tried and true, and you, and, and, and they're universal. They're basically, if there was a textbook, they are textbook. There is no textbook on it, but, you know, those that know and those, those the, guy, the guys that are experienced enough to have been around and done it and have touched it and felt it touch them, it's just something you just naturally do, and that is that I ask them to always, like, make sure you know the song, listen to the song, listen to the words, you know, get the feel of this whole thing, and then and then look around you and feel what's happening from everybody, you know, from what's that guitar player doing, how is he reacting to it, how's the bass player bumping this thing, and where is he putting that beat, and where are you putting that beat to make him sound better, blah, blah, blah. And then ultimately, when there's someone up there singing, how do you make that person sound good? What are you going to do to make them sound good? It's your responsibility when you're playing to t- to get into that zone to make them sound it. It's not your right to play just anything you want to play. It is not your right to ramble around. It is not your right to try to impress other people with what you play. Not when you're playing songs in the studio. And that's what I always have to tell anybody, whether they're young Gen Xers, uh, hipsters, or even <laughs> old cats. Why? Really? Know. Really? Yeah. Wow. It's, it, it, you, Sorry, right now, wow. it's not about you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah right. It's about what's going on in this room right now. And that's why I still really, really love, and, and I stick by recording things live with everybody in the studio, you know, a bunch of musicians at the same time. I try to get as many things, not piling up the tracks, but I try to get as many elements that are necessary for the song to have the shape that it's supposed to have and the, the basic colors and foundation and uh, framework for the melody to fix to work and, and uh, the, the drama that you need and the dynamics with, with all at one time with everybody you know so we get a lot of great live performances uh, at the studio it's incredible yeah. I would love to get out because you know I was, it's, I was interviewing Dave Bargeron who was the bone player for Blood Sweat and Tears and he said uh-huh. that he said that it, it, with Columbia they would always they would never let them all hit at the same time. You'd have to have the horns in isolation and the, you know, the vocals and the rhythm section. And so what they would, and it drove them crazy because they wanted to play, you know, and, and a lot of the tracks sound, you know, this is after David Clayton Thomas this is more when they were just a jazz group, jazz soul right. group. But what he said was that they would jam up the tunes in advance. Like maybe they, they, they do it a couple times. Like, so they'd have it show ready. Okay, and then they'd get in and they do these sort of multiple recording times with the horns and whatnot, so it would be as hot as possible. But you're saying yeah. you're you're saying did you did you have that experience? And you said like it, I mean, going back to your days in the studio, not necessarily with Island, but maybe more like like with Columbia or these perfectionist places where you're like, if I ever have my own studio, I just want to do it all live. Yeah, I mean, I I I was I was doing. I come from that, Jake. I, I every growing up, uh, at working in the studio, it's always been where everybody got in the studio and played at the same time. You know, this thing about let's let's put the drums down, right? And then let's get the bass player to play our bass line over that, and then we're going to throw the keyboard boards on this, and and doing everything from like a a a, a scratch demo of machines and and, and sequencers and 
keyboard noises. You know what I mean? That's what you use as your. That's what you're playing to. And you throw down parts and you customize these parts. And a lot of records are made that way. I don't make my records that way. Bass player, drummer, keyboard player, guitarist, at least, are all playing at the same time. Mm. I count it off. We have a click track. I get a click track because we want to be able to, if we want to edit, you know, with the new technology we're talking about, here's the way I use it in an organic fashion. I get a great live track, and then if we want to move some things around, we can edit in Pro Tools. You know, uh, Steve Cropper told me that when they used to cut at Stax Records, that they would just they would they would just they would use a verse from one song, a chorus from another, <laughs> yeah, a right. from another. Right, take. this one yeah, sounds good. Do, put it, I dig, man. Yeah, they would do twenty takes, and because Al Jackson Jr. had such great time, they right. weren't using a click track. You know, all of those tracks fit together. They were able to put all these these. These, they were doing the same thing back then before Pro Tools. Unbelievable, unbelievable. So, so it's the organic, and 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 what what are like? Is there how much do you get those that quartet, so to speak, guitar, whatever you just you talk about guitar, keyboard? Yeah. yeah. I mean, do you get them? Uh, how much? How long does that take uh, before you're actually hitting the record button? Not long at all, because it, it really it's quicker than if you do one person at a time. You know, I think some people think that they're, I think some producers or some people think, well, if we do one at a time, it'll be quicker, because we'll just, we'll just hone in on that part. That's BS, man. <laughs> I did, no, this <laughs> is, so, and this is, this is, this is and, and I want to play you this, this audio clip. Uh, we're, we're, we're putting Brown Nagel's producer hat on today, because uh, the guy also, can swing his butt off on the drum kit, but he's he's. We're, I want you to listen to this, uh, and then we'll we'll come back and, and talk talk about it. Got it. And and at that time, uh, their producer engineer uh, Bruce Botnick was um, um, engineering most of the stuff that I was doing. Just I don't know if it was coincidence or what it was, but uh, but. Uh, Hey, buddy, my grandson Charlie just walked. Hey, we're gonna no. Listen, you. It's time for we're 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 good. We we have more to do later on, Jim. Okay. You do your thing. Good to talk to you, man. Yeah. Also, we're done. Well, I want you to you know family first, man. You know. Oh no no no, it's okay. He tiptoed in here to say hello. (laughs) Hey, Charlie, how you doing? Hey, Jake says hi, Charlie. Yeah. So it's a live radio, babe. Anyway, so. So the, to, just to get to, to finish it off real yeah, quick, guys, sure. the thing is that I asked Bruce, because he was engineering the stuff that I was doing. I was doing all kind of other dates and things. So I said to Bruce one time, hey, man, can, why can't you get my uh, drums to sound like John's, you know, <laughs> on, uh, uh, you know, on those great Doors songs I'm hearing on the radio all the time? And he laughed and he said, you know, John is always telling me, why can't you get my tom-toms to sound like Kelsey? <laughs> So I, I loved what that told me was it taught me a whole lot right then, you know, especially about engineering, you know. And uh, another good thing, and I, I'll just say this, uh, it's not going to be important to anybody else but drummers. There might be a few drummers listening. Uh, <clears throat> the thing about John's, John Densmore's sound with the doors back then, I can't speak for now, but the sound back then, the magic of it was that he had a really terrible drum set, apparently. And... Um, tuned really poorly as as uh, compared to the way you're supposed to uh, tune your drums as a studio player 
<clears throat> and um, and so that was a great lesson for me at the time. That what what that meant to me was that the engineer had to have something to do. If you bring a drum set in that sounds really great already, tuned pretty and beautifully and everything, you know, then what's he going to do? He just is he's not going to have to work for it. So I learned a valuable lesson with that. Um, All right, I apologize about the grandson cutting in. That was uh, Jim Keltner there. No, that was Jimmy Lee. Jimmy Lee Keller, you could, I mean, you, you were going to nail it. And he was talking about Densmore's yeah. terrible sounding drum kit. <laughs> and and I'm like, this is a question for Brown Nagel in, in the sense that did you, uh, you know, the more and more I talk to people like Lindley or, you know, I, I didn't even remember that story from Keltner. It's like, it was, I mean, can you talk about from the engineering or the production point of view? Like, do you have, has there been an episode like that where, Somebody doesn't have the right tuning for the the studio per se, sure. but you make it work as an engineer. I mean, that to me is part of the issue is that you have dudes now, and it's it's just a smaller business. It's not an industry the way it was 40 years ago, but you don't have the botnics anymore like that to court, to, to make that sound so good. But I just want you to riff on that any way you want. Well, I mean, a great engineer is 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 worth a million bucks. Just like you know, the, the the engineer captures what is in front of him. He uses the right microphones. He places it at the right place where he gets the right amount of bottom in or top in or mid range, whatever he's looking for, which you know, from the nature of the instrument or whatever. And then he's using all of that spectrum that he is in his head putting together. How, whether he wants a real bottomy snare drum or a toppy snare drum or a mid-range ringy snare or a big fat bass drum or just something that goes boom, you know, all the things that he's he's looking for, he's got that in his mind before he puts the whole spectrum of sounds together in the studio with a band. And, and you know, he, he's going to have to hear some notes from the bass player and he's going to have to hear a little bit about what everybody's playing, but at a certain point he's going to be miking and EQing and compressing to make everything fit in together so that you don't have things that sound exactly the same on one side of the stereo or the other that are clashing. You try to make everything have a contrast so that there's like, a, it, it's like you're looking at the stage and there's a front and a back and a left and a right. Mm -hmm. So there's like this binary depth to this. You try to put everything so it's placed a certain way. That keyboard is almost completely left but it's about 10 feet back and that guitar on the right is kind of two or three feet from the front and right all the way out to the side and that bass is filling up right around the middle and everything and the kick drums right with it you know mm. so the great engineer is going to know how to place all of these things starting with microphones and whether eq is going to the track or not or whether you use compressions going to the track or not most guys don't compress very much going to the track because you can't take it away later you get a great bunch of musicians that have a great touch. Drummer's got a great sound on his drum kit. Bass player knows how to get the right type of bottom in and how much of the low mid-range he needs and how much top in or stringy noise he needs and how low he needs to go. All these things are taken into consideration. They're a great engineer, but just basically puts it all together and, and pulls it forward, and then you look at that whole picture of how it sounds. Well, when you have great players, it's a lot easier. When you have a John Densmore drum kit, <laughs> you have to be creative. With well, that's it. what so I'm trying. I'm like, did I was like, did Brown Nagel have this 
did you ever come did you did any of your mentors cats going back to texas have these i mean i just know donald duck bailey had like i mean he was in woodshop and he had cigarette ashtrays these metal trays attached to it i mean it was not perfectly tuned did you ever have a kit like that that you used or i mean because this to me is sort of revelatory I've been I've been in a couple of studios where I went in to do something fast, and someone said, well, we got the drums. And I go, well, what are they? You know, now I don't, I don't let that happen to me anymore if I can help it. But so can you talk to... about how you adapted? I mean, it must have been hysterical. Yeah, I, I've done that several times. I go into there, and, and, and I, try to, I try to get a distinctive noise out of each one of the drums or cymbals. And if they don't have just naturally when you hit them they don't go boom the way you wanted them to go and have that exact tone that you're looking for all the resonance the sustain the pitch in the right place and the touch and the feel and everything or the symbol is too too dark or uh, well, the worst type are the symbols when they're too bright and too heavy and too thick right, right so those don't record well so you have to figure out a way to touch them to get a sound out of them to find the best part of their sound. Like, okay, that symbol here, I don't like it, but I'm going to find, oh, it kind of sounds okay if you touch it right there. Bing! <laughs> Let's just hit it there. Just put Let's some tape right there. Else. Yeah, I dig, I dig, I dig. <laughs> you know, and that snare drum, uh, okay, well, if, if I but if I hit it a little off center over here with the butt end of the stick, cool, that, that makes an impact, you know what I mean? It's those type of things that you have to do as a drummer. When I have to record somebody like that, I'm sorry, I take a break and we get rid of the drums. <laughs> Very interesting. So, yeah. No, so when you're talking about creativity, are you also engineering in your studio? No, 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 I'm not engineering, but I uh, I have a, a great engineer, Johnny Lee Shell, who owns the studio. No, I need that. I, I need in. to hear, I need to talk to that cat, man. You need to talk to Johnny. I want you to talk to Johnny. I need to talk to Johnny Lee Shell because he, he's part of the, what Gradney dubbed the Texas Contingent. That was you and him and... A, we, we are indeed. It is, it is part of that family. <laughs> so Absolutely. Johnny Lee Shell, I mean, he he's a creative cat too, though. Very creative. He's a brilliant guitarist, a great singer, a great songwriter. Uh, he has he has excellent ears. He has big, wonderful ears that hear notes go by that are wrong <laughs> and not in the right chord. You know what I mean? He's got a great relative pitch right. to, to to the music, and and he has and he has a real style of his own. You know, uh, it, it's it's amazing to be around these incredible musicians that all have a style where you, well, let's get so-and-so to play bass on this, you know, because you know the bass player you want, you know. you got five bass players you're thinking about, six bass players, and you go, what about him? Uh, no, he's better at that track, you know. Or the keyboard player, no, this guy's got that gospel thing that I want. I want this on that track, you know. Johnny Lee's got a real style that when you say, Johnny Lee, let's put him on a track, you know what you're going to get. It's going to be really good. It's going to be very tasty, and it's going to be glue. I always say Johnny brings the glue. He brings the glue. Yeah, when we're recording a track and we're looking for the feel and everything, Johnny will bring the glue. He'll just go and play something that, may, and it's simple, just completely simple, and then all of a sudden everything feels good, and you go, well, there you go. You know, that's that's the artistry of of a great musician like that that can hear that and knows what to play. What is it? How do you? You you guys were literally playing drum part like if you were copying drum parts as as a youngster it was Earl Palmer or it was 
uh, you know, Purdy or, you know, I don't want to do yeah, Al Jackson Jr. Al Jackson Jr. Jr. I mean, they were all, you, know, you could tell. Gary Chester, you know. I Chester mean, was Chester huge. Was, yeah, yeah, I think, wait, I mean, somebody, yeah, no, that, uh, you know, Weinberg was, was, was talking about Gary Chester. I, he was off, but, you know, but I mean, the point is that, you know, everybody had this individual style so that you could say, well, I want Finnegan for that, that, you know, gospel soul thing, or I want Taj or, or Gradney for that, you know, that bathtub funk or whatever, you know, whatever. Everybody had their own style. And so is it, do you bring, do you, do you mix and match a lot as a producer too, where if you have younger cats that want to come in to do a session where, where, what I'm getting at is that Rick Murata, I was transcribing this this interview with him that I did, and he's like, literally, I'm listening to stuff, and it sounds like uh, machine drum parts. And then I think it's a machine, and I look at the stage, and it's actually a real person. They've been copying computer parts. And I'm like, you know, and, and, he, and, he, he, and I'm like, so with Brown Eagle, do you bring in stylists? Because my generation younger clearly have been um, not everybody, but it's harder to find those. How do you, how are you supposed to stylize a machine? That's all I'm trying to get. Do you, do you mix and match like that? Well, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't use the machine. I really don't. I, I, if, if someone asked me to make a record that required EDM and, and that type of stuff, I, I will, I will get a programmer and I will, I will, I, either the programmer will create something based on what I give him that I want or else I'll beat him over the head till I get it, you know. <laughs> and uh, I'm not really crazy about doing that stuff. I like to get everybody live. And I think you can make, unless you're making that type of music that's only done EDM, and there's there's people out there that only want to listen to EDM music, you know. They don't they hear real people play, and they don't understand it. it as odd as that sounds, Jake. What, is that, okay, can you, what does it mean they don't, they, they, they either don't, is it they don't, they understand it. They don't respect the individualism of it. I don't. I don't quite understand. Now, there was somebody. Who, they were interviewing these young people the, the other day about something. It was a, a Facebook thing, and and they. I think they were playing Led Zeppelin to these really young kids on a Facebook post, and these young kids were listen, listening to Stairway to Heaven and you know rock and roll and all these great tracks and everything. And the little girl goes, "Why is he screaming?" You know. And then the little boy, <laughs> next little boy's a. I kind of like this. I'd buy this. And he was cool. And then there's one guy. I don't like anything unless it's electronic. You know? Wow. <laughs> like, they've, it's just been, they've been, pro- you talked about it last time. It's the programming. Yeah, they've been programmed. And, the that, program. and as long as you stuff it down their throats, they're going to figure out a way to digest it. And it's next thing you know, it's going to be a part of their body, uh, mm. of who they are. Wow. You know? You're wow. going to eat it. It's going to be yours. So um, I, I just, I think you just, um, you just, you know, it just goes back to t- talking about getting choices and stylized and everything. I, I kind of, I try to handpick all the time the players and my guys. When I say you're not playing on this, so and so over here is going to play on this. You know, they might go, well, well, I can do that. Well, it's not a matter of that. It's what my vision is that I want to make sure I get. Yeah, that probably person probably can play that, and you don't want to pigeonhole anybody, especially. Uh, that are on the level of musicians that I'm talking about right now. Right. You know, you don't want to pigeonhole any of these guys. They can do anything. But some guys just have a certain feel for certain things better than others. So when you're looking for a certain color and flavor and everything, you you go to that guy, you know. And and that's just that's the blessing of being able to do this this way 
the way I'm doing it and have all these incredible players at my disposal, I, 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 I think I could go, I know I could go outside of this camp here and I could produce outside this camp. I've done it a few times. And I pulled it off, you know, with other completely foreign strangers, musicians I've never met before, in a studio I didn't know, with an engineer I didn't know, and I pulled it off by pulling the right strings and getting people to do the right things and, you know, empowering musicians to play things a certain way. I've done it, but when I come home and I get to use all my guys in my neighborhood and, and who I want to play on stuff like that, that it just gets so much better. It, you get those moments where you smell it, like Ry Cooter said. Ry Cooter, you know, man. You get those moments where you see the color. You get those moments where you feel that emotion from that from that take or from that vocal or whatever that like it gets you you know yeah and it's it's just it's just down as primal as when people play when someone plays a drum beat and people start to move you know you go boom bap i probably said this before you play a drum beat and people start to move that's part of it right there that's the beginning of it right there you're affecting you yeah, the, guys the... that can touch that can do this that can that can contact that that thing that that special energy that can contact and bring it into the music and play together with each other, that's magic, man. You can't touch that. You can't program that. Nobody can program that. You can't touch it. The, so, I mean, did I was this is this came across when one of the greatest albums that I, I that I lost and you're not playing on it, but I wanted to ask you about the first time that you came across the mercurial Delbert McClinton and Glenn Clark. Their album from 73, Delbert and Glenn, is just has that that open the door funky, you know, open the open the window funk. It's this country, it's this Gulf Coast country sound and it's Fort Worth. Fort Worth and I'm like, I bet Brown Nagel and Delbert cuz I mean, dude, he was in the Rondells for a while. I mean, that was a I mean, I, I want to know when you cross paths with with the old wily veteran Delbert McClinton. I know Delbert, he's a friend. <laughs> Good. And, and you know, I love Delbert. He's he's such a special Love that talent. guy. He man. really is. Love he's a guy. song guy. Oh. He'll write and his songs are all ex completely conversational. It's just coming straight out of you're just talking to somebody at a bar or, <laughs> right. you know, or you're telling somebody hey, you love them or whatever. You're telling somebody they're wrong or whatever. It's a total conversational music with Delbert. And I love him. He's an excellent um, communicator in that, in that respect. He plays great harmonica. He's got a great tone. He understands feel. And if he doesn't have feel and funkiness, funkiness to it, it ain't going to work for him, you know. And him and Glenn wrote great songs together. They still do. They did a record a few years ago that uh, they put out another one a few years ago, um, the two of them. Great record. Great writers. I know those guys. They're, that's Fort Worth, man. Did those you know them Worth. Did you know them when you were cooking the groove there in Texas? I, I, I knew some of the Fort Worth boys when I was coming up. Did you know, like, David Jackson and those cats? David Jackson's a sick bass yeah. player. I mean, those guys, I just love that read. So I'm just curious about, like, that's when you first connected with them. Was that sound... Was the Fort Worth sound uh, different from the sound from where Brown Nagel was from, from, from where you were at in Texas? Not that far off from Houston. <laughs> Not that far off. You know, it's just up, um, just up the highway. Right, right, right. You know, it's like, um, 
there's a certain thing to Texas players. There's a certain grease that they have. Grease, you know? grease, man. Yeah. I was you were like, yeah. and I you always you have the grease, man. But it's like you can't. But is that that's not something you can program either. You can't program grease. Oh hell no, <laughs> <laughs> no. You don't put on that shirt and all of a sudden sound like that. You know, you just don't. It doesn't happen. No, grease comes from all the things we're talking about about. The culture you come from, you know. Right. Grew up in Texas, you're going to hear, um, excuse me, I'm chewing something. It's fine. You're going to hear some blues, and you're going to hear some country. And they're going to be on the same gig. You're going to be playing a low-down Jimmy Reed song, and the next thing you know, you're going to be playing a Hank Williams song. That's it. When you grow up in Texas and you're playing, and you grow up in the clubs like I did, like Delbert did, like, uh, like Glenn Clark did, like all the guys from down there we're talking about, you got on a gig, you played a country song as well as you played a blues song. And then you played a funky song, an R&B song. You would play, you know, the latest R&B hit. And then, and then you'd play, uh, uh, like I said, Jimmy Reed. And straight up country, man, George Jones. You'd, you know, you had to mix them all up. And then as things got a little bit more sophisticated, <laughs> especially, I would say, early 70s, Late 60s, you started to feel the jazz thing come alive more. You know, that's when that part of modern jazz, when Coltrane and Miles Davis and, and everybody, they were out before then. They were doing it before then, but it took a while for it to infiltrate and, and spread around, infiltrate the, the scene and spread around the country the way it did. How, okay, this is, so, this is so, can you talk about how it melded in? It was latent, obviously, because they were doing it in the 60s, but you're saying, how did it fuse with the Grease, the Texas Grease music? Well, there's a lot of great jazzers came from Houston, you know, from Houston and Dallas. Like Crusaders, I, I mean, I don't I mean, yeah, huge. Yeah, Crusaders, Ornette Coleman, people like that. I think he was from Fort Worth or Dallas, what, you know. Well, I didn't know so that. There was a, a big modern jazz thing coming from down there, without a doubt, way back then. But we, it wasn't New York. And, you know, you know New Yorkers, they, you know, New Yorkers think they own jazz, pretty much. Right. They, even when you get when you get <laughs> East Coast, West Coast guys together, the New Yorkers, Kind of, oh, it's unbelievable! I mean, you do Julian Priester. I mean, Max. Well, yeah, Julian Priester was was furious with West Coast. He hated. He just wanted to be a bopper, you know. So it's a little bit of a, there's <laughs> there's a little bit of an elitism there. But yeah, I mean, there were. Go ahead. I mean, this is fascinating. How the how it came into your to the lexicon of of the music that you were playing. The only way it did is that we were. I'm sitting here, you know, in in love with Motown and 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 Stax, Volt, and Philly. Uh, Curtis Mayfield era of Philly, you know. Vince and, Montana, and, uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And all of that stuff. I'm, I'm in love with all of that. And I'm also listening to country music because you couldn't go anywhere in Texas without hearing it or seeing a pickup truck or a cowboy hat, you know. <laughs> and my father played country music all the time in the house. So it was there. It became part of my heart and soul. Um, and then when jazz crept in, I didn't try to become a jazz player, but... I'm going, I'm going, whoa, listen to this. Look, listen to these cats. This is on fire. <laughs> you know, it's like, you know, it's like you hear these guys play, you know, and, 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 and I'm going, then you start to kind of dig into it. Of course, you're going to go, you know, when, when you're not on stage and you're playing with your buddies or whatever, you're getting together. You're going to try to, to play a couple of things. Okay, let's, let's get the changes to this, to this uh, jazz song. And, you know, let's, let's go play Blue Train. And everybody goes, 
what's that? You know, it's like, you, you know, you want to play this one jazz song. And, and uh, when I was in a, a the, I think I mentioned playing at the Gnome Shadows, I was in that, like a 10-piece soul band. The band leader would do that. He would, he would come up with a, a, a kind of a jazz song. It would be kind of classic, yet it was, you had to kind of play a little bit of jazz to do it. Now, I just stumbled around. I couldn't play jazz at all. I'm still not a jazz player. But I love it, and, and I aspire to to those guys that do it, you know, uh, when I hear them play. And I watch them play, and I, I sit down on my own, you know, where nobody can hear me. And, uh, I mean, I don't suck, but I don't... No, I mean, I, it's cool. I mean, I, I just, it's, it, I mean, I was just, the, the idea that Lindley, David Lindley's band Kaleidoscope was playing uh, Straight No Chaser. You know, I mean, that was like, they were in corporate sure. monk tunes, and then they'd be playing some Balkan tune. And, and, and you talk about the culture. And I and, yeah. and this weaves back to the um, the Catholic is it was a Catholic upbringing that you had was that Catholic the, upbringing yeah. Um, one I thing I remember I remember like when I first had heard kind of heard jazz there was a doorman African American doorman at one of the clubs, and then we were setting up that afternoon to rehearse or something like that at the club, and the guy the cat was like he was a doorman but he was also probably cleaning the place up or whatever. Or, or clean the beer bottles from the night before, or whatever, you know, he's in the club. And he had his own record player. And all of a sudden, he's playing John Coltrane and Miles Davis over there. I'm wow. going, what is that? <laughs> wow. <laughs> you know, it was so far, and I'm going, wow. You know, as a kid, and then we started listening, and next thing I know, like, I realized at that moment that I'm talking about here that that was something I needed to pay attention to. You know, was it was it was it was not going to go away. This this was not some monster that was going to get, you know, eaten up by a bigger monster and just go away. This was going to be right there for a long time. You know, so that's when I kind of started listening to it. And and I still I listen to it for pleasure and uh, and inspiration all the time, you know, and uh, I don't get to go out and do any jazz gigs because I'm not a jazz type drummer. Really, I'm not really schooled in it. I can play a little swing on my sessions and stuff like that, and I can certainly do brush work because I've done it on several records that, that people have heard that have been, you know, brush work. My brush work on Bonnie Raitt's uh, uh, song uh, "I Can't Make You Love Me," you know. So I've done it, but that's not jazz, you know. It's just that I'm using what jazz chops I, I eked out over the years, you know. What meager little jazz. Well, I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, that you talk to guys that are, quote unquote, you know, stone, not even straight ahead jazz or just really accomplished musicians. And they'll they'll say that jazz is the most stifling word. They hate being called jazz musicians <laughs> because, right. I mean, in some ways they they consider jazz to be a blending of all musics. Were you was it the uh, I, a question for you? I, I'm sure it was all of the above, but. When the guy threw on the record of Train and Miles, was it the the feel, the space in the music, or rhythmically was it so? I guess it might have been Philly Joe playing drums on that. I don't know, but it, uh, hi I mean, there, what, Jimmy, Hold on, hi. I'm just waving. Hi. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, no, no problem. We're, we're live radio. Well, Nobody was, can see. Was it? It was. It was the sound of it. You know. I mean, go from go from a blues record to what you're saying. You know, like right. when we get off the air, just play a little Jimmy Reed or something like that. And then go straight to Miles and listen to the tonality of everything. Right. How it jumps out at you. It was like, wow. It's like, you know, you know how a piece of modern art just is, it's, it's jagged, it's 
too blue there. It's too bright there, but it's gorgeous back up underneath over there. You know what I mean? All the all the different textures and depths of the of the painting and everything. And the music was like that. It jumped out at you like that. I didn't know what to think. You know, it's not like I was really really into art yet. I understood art. I understood some of the masters. You know, it wasn't like I was without culture. You know, I understood what the certain masters of art and what they were about, but not like that. That was modern art, modern music, modern jazz. And we, they, they broke a lot of molds, man. They, they well, and, and like you said, it was not going to be, it was not going to be something that was going to be, uh, going to be eaten by some bigger monster. It was here to stay. No, no it was just going to grow. <laughs> <laughs> it, it was going to become an even huger monster than you would ever imagine. So, so much to the point that, Look, look how culturally important it is, jazz is, to, you know, coming from the African-American community, the whole poetry in life of that, jazz coming from what started out as blues. It started out as blues. Absolutely. And then it, and then it evolved into jazz. And that's, that's how those, those guys didn't wake up one day and just start playing jazz. They came from some, somewhere else. Like all the people that you're talking to on this show and, and you're talking to me about, we all came from different things, and how we arrived where we are is just part of our journey of in life of all the things we got to play and all the experiences we have. You know, I, I do want to I do want to say uh, the even though George George Jones was rocking on the radio, it he would normally be followed at, during freeform years by Ravi Shankar, Jean Luc Ponty, and then George, some more George Jones. But I mean, very, you're, very you're, good, very well put. You know, your your ears were that, that you know, and and I don't want to get morbid here at all. It's just I this goes back to the the the, the religious component of of country and Western music today. One of the things that I found fascinating, uh, just a terrible terrible tragedy would happen in Las Vegas. Obviously, I mean, wow. you know, it's just terrible and uh, and diabolical, and no, probably there will awful. never really be any answer as to why but no one of the things that didn't get a lot of press um and because you know it's it, it, you know the the cat that did this thing he could have gone to a dead and grateful dead and company show he could have gone to a santana concert he could have gone to journey tower of power steve miller he could have done i mean he could have done any type of genre of music well it's Certainly nothing that indicates that he was aiming at a country audience. I agree. Okay, as but far I might. It's what I so so putting that aside. Uh, what I what I want to ask you about is this trend towards. You talk about Delbert McClinton. That guy was talking about like you know diner stool romance. I mean he was com it was conversational country music. It wasn't. Yeah. And what I hear. Yeah, he came he yeah. certainly came from country music, without a doubt. I don't care if it was the the Amazing Rhythm Aces or, you know, I, it could have been anybody. And, and that's not even a good example. But what I'm saying is, why has country music now... The reason I bring it up is because to, when I hear modern country, it, it seems to have taken on worship music. And it's that, to me, I don't know where that connection came into. Uh, and I wanted well, to... There's a, lot of, there's a lot of worship music in Nashville and in the country uh, genre, yeah, I don't think all of it. I think country music turned into pop, basically. That's right. So, you know, it, it 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 covered. It has its own. It it is its own pop. We still have the other kind of pop, 
but it it has its own pop now. It's 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 gone so far away from actually being country. They still put a fiddle on it or a steel guitar or whatever. They still play an acoustic guitar, but the the country of it, the root of the country, there's very little of it there in what you hear on the radio and 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 pop national country music. Uh, there's still country artists out there. There's tons of them. I was at the Bluegrass, uh, hardly strictly Bluegrass Festival last you were. weekend. You were. Yeah, I was there. Yeah, uh, all four days, man. Uh, what was so that, was days. that? In, was that in Northern Cali? Where was that? It was in uh, San Francisco's Golden Gate Park, one of the most beautiful. Dude, places you are. I've ever I mean, that those. I want to see pictures of you boogieing down in there. Man, that's the pictures I want to <laughs> see. <dude. laughs> I don't know if there are any pictures of me boogieing down, but I was definitely there. It's, oh, that's it's a great. Pretty amazing place. It's awesome. I, I, man. It's a whole other conversation, really. Yeah. But but by, but my point is, what is and was country is still alive in this crowd because they're still into the folkiness of it without it being hokey. They're still into simple instruments. They're still into simple approach toward playing songs and getting the emotion across. They're, they're wonderful, men, magnificent musicians playing this, this stuff. It's a whole different thing. I mean, uh, Ornette Coleman's uh, review, which is his son, uh, 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 Donardo uh, Coleman, was had his band, and they played you know, completely Rorschach-looking music. You know what I mean? <laughs> it was just they—they they were all over the place. It was complete modern jazz, like like his father played, like Ornette, you know, senior played. That's right. And and um, and yet the contrast of that was these, these these other artists that were up there playing beautiful, sensitive ballads. Now it's fusing into. There were these two beautiful la- young ladies doing something called Rising Appalachia and. They were from Georgia, and there was a little bit of country and a little bit of Appalachia in it. But they had a they had a drummer that was playing a Northern African uh, gourd. <laughs> not a trap and set. Not a trap set. Not set a trap set. His, it was the you know making oh, those wow, noises. Wow, wow, you that's your that's your bag right there, African man. Stuff. Unbelievable. Yeah. It, so if you get out and look for it, it's so much incredible new stuff out there. That, that still holds on to that, that root of whether it's originally Appalachia, whether it came from Ireland or Scotland, or wherever the hell that root of that music came from, you know, the Gaelic side of, of the music that, that is part of our culture as well. It's still there, but it's not a lot of it in the country music you hear on the radio. And, then, and that's my question, is that it, it, country went to pop. How much of this conversation that we're having would be potentially solvable if they were playing authentic music that you saw at uh this uh this bluegrass this festival if that actually got airplay i mean would we be even having this discussion it's not it's not it doesn't fit in the programming now that's you know that's the same as pop music you know you can't take real music music and real musicians and and put them on the those pop radio stations the 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 people are not going to hear the sounds and noises they want to hear the program, the it's the programming, it's the programming to, again, pro- yeah. Again. Yes, wow. it's all programmed, it's all totally programmed. It doesn't have to be that way, but in, in no way is, in, is, is there anything left that's wide open. There might be some European radio that's still, the, I know not like me, there is some European radio that's still a wide open where you can almost play, I would say not anything, but you could play a, definitely play a broader spectrum of what exists in the world musically. You know, but not in the United States unless it's a college station. 
hardly you know, so like you the, said that they could they, it was very it, it's still authentic this hardly strictly they they were very folky without being hokey and i like that oh uh, it's incredible i mean you know there's some hokiness in some of it some of the acts i just turned and walked away from there were five major stages the size of enormous coliseums uh, amphitheater type settings and and two or three smaller stages and you could just walk around if you were ready to walk you could walk all day long you could walk a mile to get to the far of the stage but you're going to come you know and then on the way back you're going to see another stage or whatever and i would just walk away from stuff that i didn't relate to you know but if there's something i wanted to see and it sounded good and they had a gospel group on sunday morning from oakland and they were a monster they killed it and they you know everybody what a way to start the day you know with well i mean that's gospel, i mean god that's you know that's worship gospel group from oakland yeah it was strong uh, the sons of the soul revivers and uh so it's just it's an amazing festival, man. It's 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 on sixteen or seventeen years right now, and and the man who put the man who was a billionaire financier, uh, Hellman Hellman, the first name starts with an M, Martin or Melvin Hellman, and uh, he's he's set up a foundation. I don't know, a hundred million dollars or something like that, so that they could put on this festival every year. And uh, it it goes every single year, and it's packed and it's jammed. It's I don't know how many hundreds of thousand people go there. It's free in Golden Gate Park. There's nothing else like it, Jake, that I've seen. In this well, place. no, I mean I I've interview I've done interviews with one of the refreshing things is that I not just talking to to the to the uh, to the sages like you, but I mean there are the cycle of music. I mean it's I've been able to connect with my peer group, even younger cats who are up in that area playing. Yeah. music that you know and they're they you know they their ears are into the emmy lou harris 70s stuff and the and the and the melodies of the graham parsons stuff from that time so they're, sure. they're 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 reaching back for that sort of you know uh you know multiple part harmony stuff you might you know yeah. um we we opened with this uh now again we we talked last time about island studios uh, uh, you know, quite a bit. Um, but I have never seen this album. But we let in with this track, GT Moore. Did, <laughs> I, I really need you to talk because I mean, I I don't even know how much this album is selling for. I've actually never seen the album. That, that tune was called "Move It On Up," and you're drumming on that. <laughs> and yeah, where did you get that? <laughs> well, I mean, it's on, it's on YouTube. I mean, it's not like oh, I, is it okay? I mean, everything. You know, but I mean, I typed it in because I'm looking at your discography, which and I encourage anybody in my audience. To go to the All Music Guy, type in Tony Brown Nagel, go to the credits. It is the most mercurial list of of credits. And and you were so honest last time, and I loved it because you said, you know, my Grease style might have prevented me from more opportunities to really have more commercial opportunities. But and I forget how you ended it, but it, it, you weren't hung up about it, and it turned into stuff where that was. The that was Rasta. I mean, that was the heaviest. This is an. It's called GT Moore and the Reggae Guitars. Yeah. Why don't you fill in the gap on that one? Because that this is all, one of those all nuggets. White guys, all, an all white guy band playing <laughs> reggae. Uh, it was all white was cats playing reggae. I just that that, that yeah. to me is. I mean, give me the give me the videos of that stuff, man. It's a bunch of kind of college boys who just fell in love with reggae. And uh, artists in college, you know, art students and stuff like that, and and you know, the punk became very prominent right after that. But these, these instead, these guys were all into reggae. Well, I'd played with 
Johnny Nash, so I knew the reggae idiom. So when I met G.T. Moore, Gerald Moore, we became really good friends, and we were hanging out together. Next thing I know, I, I go to see them play. Next thing I you know, he needs me to play drums with him. Boom. I don't think I even rehearsed. He just called out all these iconic reggae songs that I knew, and some of them were some of them were original, and, and I became part of his band with me and Ted Hawley. Uh, Ted Hawley was living over in London as well, and we we would go back and forth being the drummer, or we would play two drummers. You would play we'd double drums? Go yeah, we played double drums in reggae. Oh. And, um, man, what a train that was. How did, but, how did that work? I mean, how did you... You know, we just stay out of each other's way. It, right. Really, you're trying to basically, you're all trying to make, once again, we go back to that thing, we're all trying to make the song and the singer sound great. And and everybody played tasty like that. So Ted Hawley was a very tasty drummer, went on to do well in New York, and still he was in Wings for a while. And, uh, you know, so he's done well. and so He's a great drummer anyhow, so he knew what to do. And we played together, and uh, it was complimentary. But that band, they were, they were reggae fanatics. They loved reggae. And, you know, we would all get together and go play colleges all over England and all over holland and some in germany we would just get in a van and drive around with a very simple setup you know drums and small bass amps and small guitar amps and hit these stages and just tear it up and we did it all and when we made that record i pretty much co-produced it with gerald and uh i don't think i had my exact correct papers at that time uh for it to be on i believe it was chrysalis i believe I, I'm, I, I am. I mean, do you have a copy of that? I mean, I am going to be. No, di- I don't know if I do. But I might have it. I might have it somewhere. I have to go look. I, I lost a large part of my collection in the years where I moved. Too sure. Much, you know? Well, I mean, I you guys. I mean, you're singing a familiar tune. Everybody seems. to, I mean, it, it's just. It's one of those albums. Actually, I didn't really. I thought that might have been one of the sessions where you actually, you and uh, your your bass partner. I can't remember his name now. We're Barry actually. Wilson. Wilson and you were cooking with the real Rastas, but this was just a, 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 a bunch of white cats playing playing Rastas. No, the bass players. The bass players an Irish guy who now lives in Florida. <laughs> Gerald lives in. Um, I love it. I think he lives in Belgium or France. I don't know where any of the other guys are. Uh, if they're still alive, I guess. So, as far as I've know, I haven't heard that anybody's passed. You know, because we're all of the same age now. But uh, I don't know. It would be interesting to try to find a GT more in the reggae guitars reunion come together. That would be really hilarious. Well, so. one thing I wanted to say to you, uh, you know, we're, we've been cooking here for seventy more, seventy-two more minutes with Brown Nagel Enlightenment. But um, I there's a there's a museum here. It's not a. It's called the Musical Instrument Museum. It's in Scottsdale. And uh-huh. it was you. You spiked my uh, memory because you brought up this this philanthropist who who basically you know funded the entire uh, <coughs> hardly strictly bluegrass festival, and the CEO from Target. Uh, this thing's been open now five or six years, and he basically funded the whole thing. And it is the most incredible. It it would take you a full day to get through this entire museum because they have it's multiple levels and they've dedicated. Uh, a listening station and ethnic instruments from every country in every continent in the world. There's a jam room, there's a five-star restaurant, and there's also this incredible performing arts theater in it. Okay. So I've wow. been there multiple times and, you know, 
there's no I, I what I'm what I'm trying to get at is there's no reason why the Phantom Blues band shouldn't be coming to play there because the acoustics are incredible and they're bringing in everybody from Tower of Power to John Sebastian to Pat Martino. I mean it's it's a it, Booker T was there, but I mean nobody knows about this place and I'm like we got to get you guys. I, how do we get you? I, I mean, let me know who your manager is. What's the name of this place again? It's called the Musical Instrument Museum, and it's going to blow your freaking mind when you see this it's place. It's in Scottsdale. It's in Scott. It's right outside Phoenix, and they are they they are a wash in money because I told you targets for the guy from Target sure. created sure. this thing. It's so I. That's sort of my next project with you is is to figure out how to get you guys down here. There's no reason why uh, sure. you shouldn't be coming down. Would love to. I'd love to get the guys together to do something like that. So let me let you. We'll just shoot some messages. But yeah, I mean, I, I'm I'm very close. And then also, I could book a date in Tucson as well. Well, so. no, we're we're gonna. I mean, yeah, I just want to start. Listen, the, the the goal now is to continue to grow uh, my presence as a as a as a not just a journalist, but as a as, as somebody who's a, gone, a Hunter S. Thompson kind of on the spot, live journalist, meeting, becoming really connected to you guys, meeting you guys and growing my own brand. So uh, I want to be able to bring you guys to places that where it's going to be fruitful and nobody really, and this place is completely established and it's a kind of place that, that uh, would, would open, would welcome you with open arms. So, um, uh, so we'll, we'll, we have some projects to do, Brown Nagel. I'll, I'll I'd let, love to do that. Let's you you hit me up, and I'll start to put the pieces together from this end. Much love, dude, and uh, just another tremendous hang. And uh, I'm going to have to talk to you again at some point about um, punk music. I still don't understand where that came in and how that the the <laughs> origins of punk. I, I know where it came went to in the '80s, but it seemed to follow that that G, that G, the reggae. And then, then you mentioned. Yeah, I, all I, all I kind of, only thing I can talk about is how I, what I saw in the beginning. You know, what and I mean? that's all. I, I, no, and we're going to save that for part three. I, I want to get okay. it because I want the beginnings of punk because I still don't understand it. But you know, when I first heard the Sons of Champlain, I didn't understand it. Now I can't stop listening to it. So you know, what, there you oh, go. You know, amazing. you know. So anyway, man, go Jake, on. It's great to talk to you, man. Thank yeah, you man. Very much for and uh, yeah, we'll we'll be in touch. Take care, man. We'll do some more, man. You take care of yourself. All, all right? right, Tony. Thank you, brother. Thank you, man. Later, Bye-bye. man. Peace. Set two in the books with Tony Brown Nagel. Before him, it was Debashish Bhattacharya. Another cosmic day on the Jake Feinberg show. We'll be back tomorrow with more. Until then, peace.